Well, good morning, and welcome to Eastlake Online. Welcome to Eastlake here. It's Super Bowl Sunday, everybody. We're so glad that you would start your pregame festivities uh, with us today as we continue, and by continue, I mean conclude our, our three-part series called Nudge. It's been a series on disciplines, um, a, a little bit of kind of like a little bit of pushing towards it. In life, nudges exist to influence us to choose promoted or preferred outcomes or behaviors. Um, I plagiarized the definition from a behavioral economics book that I, uh, I enjoyed reading through that kind of inspired a little bit of the series. And if you're, if you're looking at this online, if you look at the notes piece, there's a link to that book at the very bottom. But here's what it says is like a definition of a, uh, of a nudge. Uh, any aspect of the choice architecture, this is like super fancy, whatever. Any aspect of the choice architecture that alters people's behavior in a predictable way without forbidding any options or significantly changing their economic incentives, which is like too detailed or whatever. But there's three parts to that that are important, right? Choice architecture. You can structure things to kind of get some sort of a behavior. I was just walking down the ramp, and I closed the two outside doors on the ramp on the, on the way to get down here. And the reason that I closed those doors is because I want to kind of communicate to anybody showing up late. One, you're late. Two, that's fine. Two, we're filming in here. I would appreciate if you, your volume level drops to a certain level as you enter the doors. And just something about opening those doors and being like, okay, now I have to be quiet. It helps. It's like this little bit of a nudge in this direction. Oops. Um, and uh, so there's a so choice architecture is a part of it. Um, uh, this idea of without forbidding things. The problem with, uh, you know, saying you can't touch this is when you tell your kids don't touch this or don't play with this, that's the thing that they want to play with. And so that's not really great. And then no overly uh, economic advantages or um, sort of economic incentives to do this. I, we, obviously, we can be paid off to do just about anything because we're so uh, lustful for money. But uh, what if in nudges, it's not like I'm not going to give you anything more. I just want you to choose what's best for you and not because uh, you're getting paid to be able to do it. So examples in real life circumstances, right? You're approaching a curve on a road and there's a sign that says, hey, just so you know, sharp turn ahead. And they give you like this little, they give you like this little miles per hour. Did you know that that's not actually the speed limit for that curve? That's just like, hey, if you don't want to roll off in the ditch, this is a pretty good target, right? That's what you sh should be looking at. Um, and that's, that's a nudge. That's a nudge in the right direction to kind of lay off the gas pedal or perhaps put on the brakes. Or if you've been to a restaurant where there's, um, uh, there's calories that are located on this, like a range of calories, depending on how much dressing you put on this salad, this dressing, this salad could be 200 calories, it could be 4,000 calories. How much do you like ranch, right? That's, that's the kind of like a nudge towards I'm trying to promote to you to choose a healthier option than perhaps the burger and the fries or do whatever. Or if you've ever, as an adult, rented a car, you've gone on vacation, you show up to rent a car, this is, this is a, a, a notorious one for me, and they ask you that question, do you want to add rental insurance to the, uh, to the vehicle? And you're thinking, I already pay Allstate for my insurance, or I already pay State Farm or whoever, why would I need anything more in, the, in this way? And they have little signs everywhere that says something like, did you know that your auto insurance coverage may not cover this? And then they go through the cost of the daily rate for if the car is out of service, how much that could potentially cost you. And there's signs everywhere of like wrecked cars. Like this car ran into a pole. This one's flipped over upside down. This one's all, all this stuff. And they're nudging you to go, gosh, this kind of thing happens. And um, wouldn't that suck to be the person who does that in a rental car? So for, for a lot of us, maybe not, maybe not uh, me, but you, I don't know, whoever, they sign and they go, yeah, I'll pay extra to be able to have this sort of thing. These are, this, they're trying to nudge you toward a preferred outcome, which is them, you giving them money in this way. So we know that nudges exist. We kind of see their, their, their effects on our personality and our choices as we go through life. 
And it's really hard to miss now that you kind of see those. And if you, if you um, approach the story of Jesus through reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels about the life and the teachings of Jesus, it's hard to miss the moments in the story where he begins to nudge some of the people around him. He would be talking to them, his disciples or followers or whoever, and he would say things to them, kind of, kind of nudging them a certain direction or to think a certain way. In week one, we looked at this time where he shows up at this Pharisee's house and there's a, a woman there washing his feet and, he, and, he, and he's trying to draw his attention to her but talk to him. And so he's, he's, he's nudging, do you see this woman? This is a nudge to actually take a look at this person as opposed to, like, we, you know, like physically we know that she's there, but have you ever, do you know her story? Do you know her at all? Do you, have you looked at her with the eyes of somebody who uh, looks at this person as a human being loved by God? Or is it just a kind of a, is she an inconvenience in this moment, right? This nudge in this direction. Uh, last week, the 12 disciples are sitting there and he goes through this spiel of, you know, he is the bread of life and what that encompasses and um, goes through this communion piece on there. And a lot of people are like, man, this is really tough. And they decide to leave in that moment. And he nudges his disciples and he says, what about you? You see this crowd leaving. I know how crowds work. I know that the herd conformity piece in every single one of us, that when everybody's dumping a stock or when everybody's buying something or when everybody watching this show on Netflix, you're more inclined to watch this show. What about you? Do you want to leave too? Leaving it up to make, have them make this decision that is kind of ownership for themselves and agency in that position and, and, and for them kind of a, 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 a point in the road, a decision point for them moving forward. So anyways, those nudges take place today. What I want to talk about are why these nudges are very much still alive for each of us, because we can look at the gospel story and realize this is history, this is what Jesus did, but what does he do? What is he still doing? What is actively taking place? What kind of nudges are we experiencing as we go through our everyday life in the 21st century in this way? So I titled this, uh, the talk today, Consolation Prize. Consolation Prize. And the reason I titled it this way is because uh, my friend Danny... Uh, was recently featured on the new ABC game show called Name That Tune. It's an old show that's got this fresh new reboot. Um, and uh, it's in the very first season of the reboot. And it's, I think it's like four or five episodes in. Anyways, anyway, this is Danny. Um, and Kylie and I met Danny on a cruise ship the same exact year that we planted Eastlake. In uh, the fall of 2010... We were at Southridge, we were doing once a month preview services, and we would launch officially in January of 2011. So we, we did this preview service in uh, October, October 10th, 2010 was our first one. Then we came back and did another one in November. And then we had a cruise scheduled with my parents and her parents, and it was like this big, uh, I think it was my parents' 25th wedding anniversary, something like that. It was like a big family thing, all of our sisters and brothers and all, all of that went. And we went on this cruise thing. And uh, we saw Danny uh, performing. He was a cruise ship performer. He would play uh, cover songs uh, outside the pool, in the cigar bar, in the whatever lounge. And we just, we, I, I heard him like on day two of this trip. And we, he, his personality, he was funny, he was talented. It was, you know, you're on a cruise ship, so you're kind of trapped. So your options, surprisingly, are uh, like a little bit limited, especially um, yeah, just our personality-wise. And so we began to follow Danny wherever he performed. We would figure out which part of the day he was at. And, he, he, and um, sometimes there'd be large crowds, sometimes there'd be small, small crowds, but whatever. We didn't have a worship leader at the time. When we planted the church, it was like me and Kylie and a bunch of friends, but no, nobody was like super talented in the music department. And so when we saw Danny playing and we were like, dude, this guy is crazy talented, we considered it, I 
we, I considered it sort of a sign. You know what I mean? Like I'm supposed to talk to this guy. And looking back at it exposes like the ridiculousness of the entire situation. Listen, I know that you're getting paid currently to travel to all expenses paid uh, travel to all kinds of exotic places to play music to pools filled with happy inebriated fans. But have you ever thought about church planning, right? That's like, it's like ridiculous. I know the views here. Like, this is amazing, right? Mexico, Cabo, blah, blah, blah. Have you ever seen the top of Badger? I'm telling you, man, don't count it out, right? Um, so ridiculous, I know. And if you know me, I'm not like a huge, like, signs guy, right? Um, I make very few, if any, decisions in my personal life, but even especially in this church, based on quote-unquote signs. And I think probably many, if not all of you, are probably thankful for that. We operate almost exclusively on the wisdom of elders, right? Like a, a group a group think in terms of this. And by the way, you're going to meet some of them next week as we do our State of the Church, and we'll bring them up on here, and we'll talk through some of those decisions. We, we may make a decision. Um, in fact, you'll hear about one of them next week at State of the Church. Uh, based on the signs of the times, but for the most part, it's not really like, we don't operate from, I just had this sign and I'm supposed to go do this. I think you're thankful for that. And yet they have this sort of, they sort of play a part because Matthew uh, records this time when Jesus is talking to his disciples in chapter 16, verses two through three. And he says, when the evening comes, he, he, he pulls out this like common quote that was oftentimes used uh, for like a, a sailor, like everybody knew this growing up and you probably have heard a, a version of this before too. When evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red in the morning. Today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. The way that I remember hearing it was um, red sky at dawn, sailors be warm. I don't know, what I can't even remember it now that I'm saying it. Mm, red sky, at, anyways, anyway, it, dusk, watch out. That's it right there. You nailed it. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at dawn, sailors be warned. That's something like that. Anyways, he pulls this phrase that we even know, and I don't, are you a sailor? You're probably not a sailor, right? Oh, she was a sailor. That's, my analogy breaks down. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I'm not a sailor, and I kind of know that phrase, but not really, apparently. But it happens, right? There's this phrase that Jesus pulls out, and he says, even like everybody knows to look for the signs in the sky about what you should expect for the weather patterns for tomorrow. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. This, this is a critique on these people. Like you, you, there is some sort of a talent that he's trying to nudge people towards, towards looking for some sort of a sign, some sort of a like piece things together. Like there's something at work that you don't fully understand um, and perhaps it would be good for you to kind of engage in like, this. Is, I just feel like there's some signs things that are kind of moving in this direction. There's a, a fancy word for this called semiotics. It means this, to be able to read the signs. The Greek word for the signs is semia. That's what they were, kind of where it comes from. So Jesus is nudging his disciples and his followers to be like, hey, in your way of doing life, maybe, maybe think about, maybe work on, I'm nudging you towards seeing sort of a pattern in this way it, 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 that it will engage and enhance the way that you live life. And listen, I know if that sounds kind of esoteric and weird for you, we all engage in semiotic systems. What I mean by semiotic systems is when I was a busser, a busboy at Olive Garden, one of my very first jobs when Olive Garden opened over on Gage Boulevard, right? I got a job, I applied to be a waiter. They said, 
no, you're going to clean tables. And I said, fine, that's, will you still pay me? And they said, yes. So I was a busboy. And what they train you to do is to read the signs of when people are done with their plate, right? The napkin on there, they're sitting back, they're unbuckling their belt a little bit. They're doing something to be like, now's the time to be able to go and clear the dish and get it written. But you don't want to go too early, but you don't want to go too late where they're like, where's, who, is anybody working here, right? You're trying to read this sort of thing. As a parent, you do this with your kids too. They have friends come over to the house. Your kids are like, you know, it's been a few months and they've seen other human beings or whatever. You're going to, if your kids are going back to school uh, soon or whatever, you're going to have even more of this thing. You're going to have to retrain them of some social cues. You know what I mean? Like, hey, can you read the fact that they don't want to play with you? Can you read the fact that she's not interested in you? Can you read the fact that you're being a turd? And if you keep acting like this, this is what we tell our kids sometimes. If you keep doing these things and acting this way, you will not have any friends. I'm just telling you, like, people will not want to hang out with you. Read, this, read the room a little bit, bro. Read the situation and get it kind of, so that's, those are semiotic systems. So how do you balance being grounded in reality? Which I said, I don't think you want me to be a pastor who, like, operates this church from, I just, I'm constantly seeing signs and we're changing directions all the time, but also adept at reading the signs. So, like, there's, like, there's somewhere, there's a, it's a tension, there's a spectrum, it's somewhere in the middle in, in this way. So, all that to say, back to Danny for a second. Uh, for obvious reasons, he passed on my offer, right? That shouldn't come as a shocking revelation to you. But he did mention that his dad and his brother were both worship pastors in Detroit, Michigan. So I wasn't like crazy far off, right? Um, which was kind of like further confirmation for me, which was not probably good. I would eventually meet both uh, Danny's dad and his brother when I officiated Danny and Emma's wedding on the front of the Bellagio Fountains in Vegas a few years ago. Danny's been through the uh, Tri-Cities a few times since then. He played at a members-only karaoke party once. Uh, this was back when we were at Southridge a long time ago. Uh, and he played at our Drinks for Drinks event, I think, two or three years ago uh, as well. He now lives in Australia and with his wife, Emma, and their dog performing on cruise ships leaving Sydney. So he's living a pretty good life, right? It's not bad. And he was on this. So he posted this, this picture that he, you, you just saw him there um, and a, a little while ago. And he said, so I did a thing, tune in to watch. And he's on this thing. And he was built. This is the game where like um, a few notes are played and you have to identify the song. This guy plays cover songs on cruise ships and like he was built for this. I, when I heard that he was on the show, I'm like, oh, he's going to be a millionaire. Like, I don't know how, I don't know how much they give away, but he's going to win it all. Like, he's going to crush this. Life. I feel so bad for her. Um, but he's going to crush. And he, and he did. Um, he made it all the way to the bonus round. He, he got past the, the face-off round and made it to the bonus round with a chance to win $100,000. My friends, Danny, I have a cell phone number in my phone, had a chance to win $100,000 answering a couple of questions, trivia questions. Uh, but he incorrectly named a one, I'm, Spoiler alert. Sorry, if you're going to go plan on watching this later. He incorrectly names a One Direction song, which, you know, that's fine, I guess. If you're going to lose, better to lose it on that one, I guess. Uh, and ended up walking away with a paltry $72,000. So the next time he's in town, it's his turn to buy Wingstop. Danny, if you're watching, it's your turn, buddy, you know? Um, and they call it a consolation prize. Sorry you didn't get the big prize, uh, but here's something to help you in the consolation process, to console you for not winning the big one. Here's $72,000, we hope it's enough, and it's always more than you had, so yeah, it's fine, it's, it's all good, right? Um, so kind of a fun kind of picture in this way. Now, 
I want to talk about a different sort of consolation prize with that sort of thing in mind. Not that you didn't know what a consolation prize was before, but I just wanted to let you know that I know somebody famous. That's part of my way of doing it. <laughs> Acts chapter 1. This is the story of the actions of the apostles post Jesus' uh, uh, death, burial, and resurrection, right? Um, all four of the Gospels come at the approach of the death of Jesus um, kind of like their own, they kind of weave their own way, but they all end with the same story. It's always he died at the hands of uh, Roman soldiers and Jewish people who wanted him killed on a cross and buried in a tomb. Um, And after that, then, it's the description of how the apostles responded to the resurrection that shows up in the end of some of those gospels. Not all of them. Mark doesn't have it. But um, in the actions of the establishment of the early church, moving forward, how they carried the Jesus story and tradition forward from that point on. Verse 3, and it's Luke that's writing this. Um, Luke, is, uh, Luke was not one of Jesus' disciples. He was a doctor, a very educated person who d- took it upon himself to write an orderly account for a certain man or perhaps a fictional person named Theophilus in, in the book of Luke. He, he says, I took these Took it upon myself to write this down for you. There's a lot of information out there about Jesus. I wanted to provide an orderly account. So he writes Luke, and then later he writes a second, op- or a second Luke 2, if you want, but it's known as the Acts of the Apostles. So he's rewriting again to update them on the story of Jesus uh, and his apostles and his actions and their actions. He, Jesus, verse 3, appeared to them over a period of 40 days. This is post-resurrection um, and, and trying to prove that this actually happened and, and it wasn't like a made-up story. He's trying to draw it out. Like it wasn't like a one-time thing they saw and it could have been something they ate. Over 40 days, he appeared to them and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one specific occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. He's, he's basically saying, I'm about to leave and depart, but as I go, I've left you a consolation prize of some sort, a gift that kind of keeps uh, on giving in this way. There's basically three types of immortality that we are aware of as, as culture, right? Um, this idea of immortality of fame. Uh, when somebody has an immortality of fame, we sort of remember who they are. We remember their story. We sit on their park benches, and this, this thing was sponsored by so-and-so, or this building has the name on it. That's an immortality of fame. People spend a lot of money in their life, at the end of their life specifically, so that our name, my name, or our family name could continue, that people would kind of know who we are. And for a few years, maybe they do, and then uh, history would have it uh, for a lot of people. That just kind of goes by the wayside. And you sit on benches and don't even look at the plaques anymore. Uh, number two is an immortality of influence. And an immortality of influence, it basically means we still do things differently because of his or her thought on this process. Um, when it comes into the world of economics, um, Adam Smith's thoughts on money, wealth, and markets still shape present-day economics, the invisible hand, right? This idea of uh, we still do this today based on thoughts of somebody who wrote this down hundreds of years ago. Anyways, so an immortality of influence is a step up from an immortality of fame um, because it still engages our practice. And then finally, uh, Jesus introduces this new category, this immortality of presence and power, and, and essentially communicating to his disciples and followers how you experience me is going to change, right? Um, 
my spirit is going to live on within you, which again, they would not have understood that. And, and even us sometimes even reading this now, it's okay if you're like not really a church person, you're like, I don't understand that too. Good, we're gonna talk about that a little bit. But this is what he's, he's, he's moving from. It's not just remember me someday. It's not just like do things differently because of me. Those are both immortality of fame and immortality of influence. That's fine. He's introducing this brand new category, immortality of presence and power. It's the ongoing nature of Christ within us. And it's population one. Like there's not a lot of this, right? He, he, this is a brand new category which he's doing. So then, he, then we go back and we say, okay, he said this, this gift is something of which I've spoken about before. You'll know it based on what I've talked about before. So um, we're gonna look at a couple of texts that kind of support what this kind of gift is and we'll see how this plays into sort of nudge. We're gonna stick with John's text. Uh, even though Matthew and Mark and Luke all talk about it, um, I think John's is kind of the most relevant for us uh, for today. So John chapter 14, he says this. If you love me, this is him talking to his disciples um, and he says uh, like pre-death arrest, all that kind of stuff. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. And I put the Greek word in here, parakletos, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. I'll give you another advocate. Um, and what he's, what the, the kind of, when you, when you do like a word study on what this word actually means, it's like, it's a passive verb in nature. And so it's been really, really hard to define, depending on what translation of a Bible you have, this can come across as advocate, it can come across as helper, the Holy Spirit as counselor, consoler, uh, comforter, all, the count, all these kind of different categories for this. And it's not easy to define because because it's a passive word in nature, it basically means he doesn't do the work for you, but he influences you to be able to go on and do this, or he nudges you in this direction. He's a helper. He gets you to do things that you need to do for yourself, but he's not going to do them for you. Again, it's passive. So it's like he's a helper, but it's kind of like not when you're going to invite your neighbor over to come help you install something in your garage and you just watch him do it the whole time. Did that this weekend? Um, that's not what's happening. It's not like a counselor where I'm laying on a couch and they're helping me process through some things and I, I've got to, uh, and they solve my problems for me. They're asking the right questions to get me to think a certain way to get me to go there. That's, that's what's taking place in here. And, and so what's interesting is, in spite of everybody's attempt to kind of put advocate or counselor or comforter in, in these with capital letters to kind of insinuate Jesus' spirit living on within us, in Christian theology, a lot of times what's done is this word is simply transliterated over into something else. When we do this all the time, when there's a foreign word that doesn't quite translate to English, and so we make up a word that sort of sounds like the word in its original way. So in, if you grew up in church, perhaps some guy in like, uh, you know, stood up and read a hymn or read a text or a saying or a pastor like me talked about this idea of the Holy Spirit as paraclete. It's a paraclete. That's them going, it's really hard to define the work of the Spirit in us. There's no great word that exactly translates over from the Greek, so we're just gonna make up a word, and it's gonna be like, it's hard to explain what he does, but it's, it's this. It's this idea of a helper. It's all of this. This is, this is why I think the idea of a nudge is so powerful. Like, what is it that's in us? What is the gift that he gives us? The, the thing that I think... Jesus gives us is this continuing aspect or this continuous nudge that he did with his disciples as we looked at for the first two weeks.
weeks. But the gift of that's going to continue in the lives of believers, in the lives of everybody, towards this is Jesus' spirit inside of us, nudging us toward a preferred outcome or behavior. He's going to go on uh, to, to talk about, and by the way, this, uh, what kind of outcome? It kind of depends based on the situation. This could be an idea of an advocate is, is somebody who is, it's like a law term, who fights on our behalf, who speaks on our behalf for something. Uh, a counselor, a counselor a lot of times helps us see blind spots in our own lives, helps us to realize um, in certain moments where we are the ones who are at fault in a situation. When you go in for marriage counseling, a really good counselor We'll listen to your side of the story. We'll steer the conversation to be like, listen, you can't control how he's going to treat this or do this or this way. What you can control is you, and let's look at the flaws, and let's look at how can I d- deal with the conviction of what I need to work on in my own way. So there's a convicting nature of Jesus' spirit in us as well. So if we've ever felt bad about something, if we've ever felt convicted, if we've ever felt nudged towards, I need to work on that in me, I would argue that that's the work of the Spirit, Jesus' Spirit that lives within us, nudging us towards that sort of behavior. Verse 26 of chapter 15, the next chapter, for this, he's going to talk about this in three successive chapters, all of them dialogue with his disciples, preparing them for this incoming gift that is going to be this spirit. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, again, John just, I don't know what to call it, so I'm just going to call it advocate, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. He's going to continue the work of nudging you towards truth. He's going to remind you of the things that I've taught but it's going to go further than that. So there's a sense in which it's past looking. It's like I'm being nudged towards this. I'm being nudged to remember what Jesus said, what Jesus said and how he led and, how he, and what he said and what he did. That's in us. It's pointing us back to any time that we go, I have to think through this through the lens of what would Jesus do? That's the spirit in us guiding us in that way. But then also, verse 12 of uh, chapter 16, the very next chapter, I have Jesus again saying, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, as in the truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. I have more to say to you than you can currently bear. Like, you're not even going to understand all the things that I'm telling you right now. Um, so, but I'm entrusting this gift, this spirit that's inside of you, that is going to teach you the things that you can't right now listen to and hear, but eventually you will. It's the ongoing process of this. So it looks back at what he did. It looks forward into the unknown, this gift. Revelation, by the way, is bound to be a progressive process, right? There are things that you tell your six-year-old about how things work in the world that you update when they turn 12. Um, This is what they needed to know then, but I don't want to tell them that now. So, and based on just personalities too, um, this last week, I started watching The Mandalorian with our kids. Our twins turn eight this week. And that feels like a good age to kind of introduce Star Wars to them. Anyways, uh, and then we have a, a, a 12-year-old, almost 13. But um, So we started watching this Mandalorian. And in the show, I don't know if you've watched it, but he's got this gun that he's... And you're, you're always worried about, like, violence and kids and nightmares and all that kind of stuff. And we have uh, our daughters a little bit more susceptible, perhaps, to nightmares than, than our, our son would be. Um, and so uh, we have to be careful. And, you know, I'm looking at Kylie doing that look. The husband looks to the wife like, is this okay for the kids? Like, I enjoy this. I, I like this. But what do you think, right, uh, for them? And uh, 
So then Jovi asked this question, because um, he, he like, uh, when, he, when he shoots them, they just like, I don't know, they just go away, right? So anyways, I don't want to get into the weeds on this. But um, she goes, Dad, what's happening to these people that he's shooting? And I said, and I'm thinking through my mind, like, as an eight-year-old who's about to go to bed, right? We watch this right before bed. That's probably not, a, that's a bad call on my part. But um, I have to come up with this thing. And she, so I tell her what she needs to know. Oh, that's just like a, she's just, he's just transporting them to a different planet. This is a transport gun, right? Pew. And, and then they go away. And then uh, she, she takes it and she's like, oh, okay, yeah. And then my son's on this side of me and he goes, dad, he's disintegrating him, isn't he? And I'm like, yeah, he is. So, yeah, so like, you you have two different approaches based on the kid's personality and what they need to be able to hear in this way. Um, I think that uh, this also is an important piece in understanding the role of the Spirit. This works on a corporate level too. Um, Because when you read like the Old Testament and sometimes and you come across certain things about God saying this to, to, you know, commanding the Israelites to perform these things, to kill everybody, to do this, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And then you read the New Testament, it feels like maybe God had a wake-up call or a moment or, I don't know, something different. And, 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 and I think the way that you can kind of look at this is this, this idea of that's what they needed to know then, um, and it changed over time, and God kind of initiated that through the people of God, the prophets in the Old Testament, through Jesus, and then continues that sort of evolution process in the New Testament and forward and beyond with this idea of the Spirit. Like, I think that those things can change. I think that that's when, when Jesus is on a hilltop in Caesarea Philippi over, overlooking the town, and he's with his disciples, and he, he, he's, he's asking them, he's kind of preparing them for this absence that he's gonna be gone and, and, and realizing, having them realize this new season that it's going to be in, he says, hey, what is everybody saying about me? What do we, you know, I don't think he's really concerned about his own popularity. He's just trying to get them to, to kind of understand for themselves. He says, who, what do people, who do people say that I am? Well, some say Elijah, some say this, that, that, and the other thing. And then he looks at each of them and he, and he says, and what about you? Nudging them in a way. Uh, who do you say that I am? What do you think? And Peter, almost without hesitation, says, I think you're the son of God. I, I think that, like, I've seen too much. I, again, this is his interpretation. This is his way of this idea of to whom would we go, like we said last week. Like, what are my options? I mean, good grief. I think you're the son of God, the Messiah, the one that we've been longing for all this time. And Jesus looks at him and says, on this rock, Peter, on this rock is what I'm going to build my church. And you can think that maybe that's Peter specifically or that perhaps that teaching of Jesus is the son of God, that that's going to be the thing that the church is built on. That's the way that I would lean interpreting that verse. Um, and on this, on, on this uh, the, or the text was, in the gates of hell will not overcome it. Verse 19, I will give you the kingdom or the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is, this is him, his way of saying, listen, the church at some point is going to be the conscience of the nation and of the world. And what you say is good and what you say is bad is going to be considered good and bad. And that is a huge responsibility. And I'm not leaving it up to you yourself. I'm going to give you a gift to kind of help you interpret these things. This spirit that's going to, under, that's going to help you understand all of the different teachings and learnings that I can't tell you now because you just don't know. But there's, that's going to be part of this gift, this, this coming alongside you to help you interpret these things. So what we see is this idea of a spirit helping us with progressive revelation on a personal level and even on a corporate level. 
God's spirit lives on, Jesus' spirit lives on within us individually and corporately as a church, helping us understand these sort of things. And I, I used the word consolation prize at the beginning, not because I felt like the Holy Spirit is a lesser value than the original, but probably because that's how it felt to the disciples listening to Jesus and remembering his words. Imagine being one of those disciples and being with Jesus, seeing all the things that he did, and then for him one day to say, I'm leaving you, but don't worry, even though I'm gonna be gone, here's something. It had to have felt like a loss. It had to have felt like as a kid, do you remember when your mom came home from the store and she said, hey, I bought you some Fruit Loops? And you're like, oh, that's awesome. And you open the bag and what's inside? Bagged cereal that says Fruity Tooties on the top, right? And you're like, it's not Fruit Loops. And she's like, it's Fruit Loops. And you're like, no, it's not. It's, and then, or, you know, it's another different bag and it's Fruit Loops with the two O's, fruit with the dots above the O's, right? And you're like, this is clearly Fruit Rings, not Fruit Loops, mom. Nice try. Not exactly what I was hoping for. Jesus coming to them going, hey, don't worry, guys. I mean, I'm going to be gone. I mean, I've been the hero of this story. I've done things. I've you know, performed miracles. I've raised, I've raised from the dead. Like, I can understand how you'd be like, hey, that seems like something we want to hang on to. But I'm leaving. But don't worry. I'm leaving you something. And I'm sure it felt to them almost like a consolation prize. But if you think about it, for them and for us, before, it was limited to time and place with Jesus. Because he came and took on the form of humanity, he's in you know, one certain place and one certain time. He's at the Sea of Galilee. He's on the journey. It's, it's, he, he's the here and now. And now he's going, this gift that I'm giving you is portable. You can take it anywhere. This goes inside of you. The Spirit of God lives inside of you and goes with you. And how much more of, like, you're going to like this a lot more, I promise. You don't have to be around me. All of these nudges that I've been kind of doing with you in person now lives inside of you and you get to kind of go do this permanently. So listen, if you grew up not really a church person and you've heard, you've you know, read the book of John or read the New Testament and you're trying to understand the role of the Spirit, um, I think this is hopefully a little bit more of a progressive revelation. For, for you, enough to know that Jesus had a spirit or whatever, that's, that's great. This is gonna be, the, this is the next thing that you need to know. I really do think that the spirit of Jesus lives in us, nudging us toward a preferred outcome, a better humanized version of, of, of what we are, uh, uh, the ability to kind of uh, deal with personal conviction about some things, uh, a helper, a consoler during times of trials and, and, and discomfort and pain and persecution or whatever. Um, it, it's a way for us to kind of see other people um, and see situations through the lens of what Jesus and how Jesus would want us to see it shapes all of those things about us. And maybe you grew up in church and you never really even had words to kind of put this into to kind of perspective. This, I hope this is kind of a helpful, what is the role of the it's, Spirit? It doesn't have to be a weird thing. I mean, there's all kinds of questions that can come out of this, right? Uh, who, who has access to the Spirit? Who's it available to you? How does one get it? What's with the whole baptism piece? Those are all very good questions and probably worth your time to kind of discover and go on. But I, I really do think that the more important piece right now for us to kind of think about and focus on, uh, and, and the piece that I wanted to take away with this nudge is Jesus consistently nudged and he still does even today. The question will be for us, a better question than even perhaps those is, am I even listening to that? Am I quiet enough? Am I quiet enough? Is my life at a pace enough to be able to hear what I'm being nudged towards? And is that just my personal conscience or do I believe that that's the spirit of Jesus living on within me 
influencing me, pushing me, but not commanding me, not forbidding me, and not overly economically incentivizing me, just nudging me towards being more like his son, the son Jesus, in the way that he would do things in his way. There's another fantastic book. Well, it's, it's okay. It's not fantastic. I say fantastic. That's me just elaborating. It's a, it's a good book on nudge that also influences this thing by a guy named Leonard Sweet. He lives in the Pacific Northwest. He's a professor. But the subtitle of his book is Awakening Each Other to the God Who's Already There. And I like that subtitle a lot. I like that idea of the Spirit of God is inside of us, awakening us to the God who is already out there doing things, to the work of God in this world, to not think that we've got the corner on, you know, even our religion or our church specifically as the corner of the market on all things spiritual, but to say, God's at work. God, give me the eyes to see it. As I go from here, God, let your spirit, as our, in our prayers, God, let your spirit guide me and convict me and, and console me and, and comfort me, uh, but also let me, let me see things with a new perspective of the way that you would want me to see them. Nudge me towards this. It's a gift, and it's not really a consolation prize. I would say it's an upgrade. And that's not to speak ill of Jesus. It's to say the, 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 the everywhereness, the, the, uh, the presence of it, it it's... According to Jesus, he was so excited to get off the scene so that they could experience this fully. The Father sends this in my place and in my stead while I go and, uh, and speak on your behalf elsewhere. So anyways, that, if you've ever kind of, we don't really talk about the spirit much in our church in this, in this way, because um, I feel like in church history, it's kind of, if you came from a Pentecostal background or something, it can get kind of weird. But I really do believe that that nudge inside of us is God's spirit at work within us. And he continues it. He did it. We have examples of him doing it, and he does it even to this day. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that as people trying to uh, learn what it would look like to walk in the way of Jesus, that we would not think that, uh, or that we would recognize all of the tools available to us. And one of these is uh, this conscience, this spirit in, in, inside of us, a gift to kind of go in that direction. May we be sensitive to it. May we, may we have ears to hear it. Um, may we recognize as much as we sometimes would want it to be kind of you know, forced on us because we are stubborn and we like to do our own thing. Um, may we recognize that it's just simple nudges. And even when we would want it to be more, we recognize that that's probably not, oh, it's just not how it works, but even, even then, I don't even know if we really truly would want it. So give us the wisdom to be sensitive enough to the nudges that you guide us into this week and this month. Um, may we recognize it as the work that you're continuing to do in each of us. May we slow down our pace. May we quiet our minds. May we stop creating a case for ourselves of our own greatness and perhaps see things and others. May we awaken to the uh, view of your work in this world. Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our life. The curse act on in your name. Amen.